Don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church. That's under attack. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very, very powerful subject to cover today. But first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms to meet your needs of reading or listening or even watching you can check us out on all sorts of different platforms from youtube to facebook when you type in the search bar our mighty fortress podcast or more specifically for the facebook page at our mighty fortress that particular page especially is growing more and more every day and we love to have you we post every single day on that on that page you can also visit our website ourmightyfortress.com we have a host of media there, articles, videos, and even a link to our merch store to help support the work. If you feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website and the established PayPal link there. If we've helped you in some way through our work, I'd love to hear about it. OurMightyFortress at gmail.com. Go ahead and send us an email. I'd love to hear it. By following and supporting the podcast... You let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I'd like to address a very difficult and debated subject. And it's gone on for thousands of years. This subject has caused much emotion and tension in many people because of the very nature of this issue. The subject is the problem of suffering. And it's one of great importance to understand, as well as the most frequently asked question by all of mankind. We dealt with a specific aspect of the problem of suffering in podcast number six, titled With a Purpose. But this podcast is going to address the philosophical question as a whole. And the answer is very, very important to our individual lives. We're also going to ask questions like, why is there suffering in this life? More specifically, there are subtopics to this category like, why do the righteous suffer? Why is there natural evil in this world? Why is there so much evil compared to any lesser amount of evil? Is God not powerful enough to stop evil? Why could God not create a world that does not allow for the case of evil? Most importantly, did God set man up for failure with evil by putting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the Garden of Eden? 
any one of these are the type of questions that go through one's mind as they progress in this life. I do want to have the correct foundation when we address the problem of suffering. Because of the depth of the question and how it touches our emotions, we can tend to be unreasonable in how we treat God. So the first concept is that not everything that God does or allows needs to be, needs to be explained by the human finite mind. Now, God does do everything with a perfect rhyme and reason. And we have to look at this with the right frame of mind. A person, particularly in the Western world, demands answers from God, where many times, even in the Eastern world, is a completely different attitude, especially when they approach the problem of suffering. If we keep the right mind and the right heart, we can proceed through the various questions and issues under the problem of evil, and we can extract the answers through the Christian scriptures. This subject can be pretty word-heavy and philosophical, especially when you read books about it, but I will strive to do my best to effectively communicate it. With that introduction, let's get right into this. The answer to the problem of evil is one that is multifaceted, and it can't just be answered in one question, but rather several. This is simplified by the author John Feinberg as, quote, a distinction between the religious problem of evil and the theological slash philosophical problem of evil, end quote. This separates the questions that falls under either category of the problems of evil, and it allows an attempt to answer each accordingly. Defining these two categories are as follows. You have the religious problem of evil is that one that an individual person is experiencing, like the loss of a loved one or a health challenge, where the theological and philosophical problems of evil deal with not just some of the specific problems, but rather the existence of evil overall. To begin with this subject, let's look at what has been addressed by several renowned atheists, such as David Hume and J.L. Mackey, with the latter being the most recent. Mackey adopts much of Hume's argument and brings it further and goes as such, quote, The problem of evil is a problem for someone who believes that there is a God who is both omnipotent and wholly good. In its simplest form, the problem of evil is God is omnipotent, God is wholly good, and yet evil exists, end quote. What Mackey is implying is that it's a contradiction for God to be good, yet there's evil in the world. How does one break down and reconcile what seems to be a very strong and potent attack on God? First, the atheist will try, as Mackey does, to make the problem of evil as one of a religious person's problem only. The problem is also born under the atheist as well. The humanist-slash-atheist has a philosophical issue alone to deal with, which is absolutely significant in dealing with having meaning in life itself. It also has a devastating effect because of nature's evil in this world. A very good book to understand the next progression that I'm going to talk about. It's called How Should We Then Live by Francis Schaeffer. Now, he writes the book 
going through uh, history and matching alongside Christian history and really gives the philosophical advances of the nihilism uh, that there is no meaning to life and how we as humanity, uh, the atheistic slash humanistic side came to that conclusion. And he did it through different equations, uh, especially starting with Greek philosophy. The process began with the old Plato versus Aristotle argument with universals versus particulars. What do I mean? Particulars emphasize the person and the universal emphasizes meaning. It was the famous painting called the School of Athens that was painted during the Renaissance that emphasized this particular difference. Then came along the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who progressed the argument autonomous freedom versus autonomous nature. Now, autonomous freedom is dealing with the freedom of the individual and the autonomous nature deals with the focus of the actions of nature itself. So, freedom of an individual versus nature. Immanuel Kant, later on, then progressed it further to the nominal world, which is the concepts of meaning and value, versus the phenomenal world, which is how the world can be weighed and measured. Now, much of science is conducted through the practice of what can be weighed and measured. This humanist argument came to its conclusion with Soren Kierkegaard when he progressed to the final equation with non-reason versus reason. To have faith in his mind or to be optimistic in this life means that you don't use actual reason. On the contrary, to use reason was to be pessimistic about life due to the cruelty of nature itself. The problem of evil to the humanist leads logically to pessimism of this life, which often leads to cases of, say, suicide or war or death because of the lack of care to pursuing on in this very cruel life. To be fair, not all atheists buy into this concept of good and evil overall, and they'll say, well, there is no problem of evil. Richard Dawkins once famously stated, quote, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Others are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at, no, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows DNA just is, and we dance to its music, end quote. To the appearance of the atheist slash humanist, why bother going on in life? Nature is just cruel. Well, just live the way that you want. Live it up. Now, a Christian or a theist, somebody who believes in God, can look at that type of reasoning and just say, wave it off. But we do have to answer certain questions because it seems that the character of God is essentially under attack with statements like these from the atheist. Well, the first and foremost important characteristic of God to understand is his holiness. This is how one is able to even define sin or evil itself. To be holy 
means that God is complete and perfect in a moral sense. God is good because he is first and foremost holy. Also, in effect, God did not create the world in which had evil in it in the first place. The universe and the earth were perfect in its foundations in the creation. Sin was brought into this world through Adam. You see that in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. And Adam's sin devastated the entire world and universe, and we felt it ever since. In Ezekiel chapter 28, God gives a description of Satan, who was the anointed cherub created by God and was very beautiful to look upon. God describes him as being full of wisdom and beauty. Satan fell from his grand position with God as a chief angel when he was proud and wanted to be like the Most High, as in Isaiah chapter 14 and what it describes. Satan is the one that deceived Eve, and then Eve gave the fruit to Adam and therefore brought in uh, the wickedness into this world, the sin-cursed earth, the sinful human nature. Now, we do know that angels had the capability or were created with the capability to decide for themselves if they wanted to follow God, which is otherwise known as free will. We see this demonstrated through the decision of Satan, but also that he can he convinced a third of the hosts of heaven to defect. <laughs> you know, that's kind of astounding when you think about it. When we get to Genesis chapter 3, we find the serpent, or apparently Satan, already fallen, or in that case, to have fallen, and then progressed to deceive Eve, and then through Eve, Adam, of course, as we said before. But this begs the question, why God would allow Satan and the other fallen angels to be cast onto the earth into a perfect creation in the first place? Also, why did God not destroy Satan and the other angels that rebelled when they first sinned. One cannot be totally sure of the rationality of God for doing these things, but it is possible that he did so at first to prove Adam and Eve and what choice they would make and allow for the freedom of their will. We find this very similar situation with Job and God when God demonstrates his superiority and glory through his righteous men on earth, thus shaming Satan. It could be the case that Adam could have chose differently and rejected the temptation of Satan, that God would have then sent all the angels that sinned into hell. God is all-powerful as he created everything from the somatomic particle to the largest burning sun in the universe. God can do anything that is logically possible and in line with his character. The most well-known fallacy is asking if God can make a rock so big he cannot carry it. And the answer is no. It's not logically possible. The Godfried Leibniz argument goes that God created out of an infinity of possibilities the best world, though it allowed for sin. This type of argument is used in theory when atheists will question why God would allow uh, such a creation of a universe that allowed the capability of sin. This does not take into account the perfect creation and the free will of man, which will be addressed later. 
and there are shortfalls in dealing with the problem of evil. Setting aside natural evil, is God somehow morally responsible for man's sin? The root of sin comes from the heart of man when he pursues after his own lust. In the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 3, it reads, quote, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death." End quote. The choice of sin comes from man's free will to pursue after the lust that he sets his eyes upon. God does not tempt any man with sin, and even if Satan is the source of temptation, it is still the choice of man to pursue after it. An individual person's needs or desires are not necessarily sinful. But when it is those particular desires that contradict the law of God, that the act comes forth and then it becomes morally evil. The progression usually goes from the eye to the heart and then to the hands. Jesus also clarifies evil in Matthew chapter 5 by stating that the sin begins in the heart before it ever comes out to the hands because you have already decided to go forth on it. One may try to progress the argument from here and accuse God of some other faults. The first is that God could have eliminated moral evil by doing away with mankind when they first sinned. Though God could have done this with Adam and Eve, it would have totally defeated the purpose of why God even created man in the first place. And also, it wouldn't, would not allow God to demonstrate the other characteristics, such as grace and mercy. The second is God could have eliminated all possible causes of evil. That way man could not be drawn into failure. There's a major problem with this argument too, as it, because it leads back to the first. Because of sin, all of the universe, to include our mortal bodies, are defiled, and that means that God would just have to start all over again. The third argument is that God should remove any and all desires from man to keep him from sinning. This is also a loop back to the answer of the first argument because the whole universe is scarred by creation. It defeats the purpose as to why God created man in the first place. On the subject of theology, there is a discrepancy with the concept of judgment and hell with the problem of evil. Those, the unbeliever will say, how can a loving and merciful God send people to a literal burning hell where they'll be tormented forever and ever for the sins that they committed in a finite world? It was D.A. Carson who said, when Jesus Christ came, it was he, more than any other person in the New Testament, who gives us the most graphic details, talking about hell. On the whole, Jesus himself was not shocked by the existence of hell, but by the hardness of people's hearts. Now, what he's saying is that Christ wasn't surprised when he talked about the concept of hell, and neither were the Jewish believers, by the way. Many times, this particular question is brought up by individuals that do not understand the very nature and character of God as they just try to reason with their finite minds. Theologians can even fall into this trap by putting God in a figurative box of their own making. Given that God is an eternity, 
how can one within this picture frame of a universe and having a finite mind understand the eternality of God's ways? It's Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 through 9, quite literally. Many theologians fall into the trap of trying to explain every aspect of God because of the atheist demands. They feel the pressure from the unbelievers and they have to somehow answer or he's just not going to believe. Well, I have a solution for that. They're not going to believe you even if you do answer. I've done that many a times. To understand the concept of hell, one must start again with the holiness of God. It was Dr. Henry Morris who most notably said, quote, The resolution of the alleged conflict between God's love and his wrath lies only in his holiness. The same God can show both love and wrath because he is first of all holy. The angels surrounding God's throne neither seeing love, 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 nor wrath, 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 but rather seeing holy, holy, holy. God's holiness involves a strict separation from all sinfulness and perfect justice in dealing with the sins of his creatures. If God were to violate this basic attribute, his forgiveness would be well nigh useless. Of what value is the forgiveness of someone who has no standards? The concept of salvation makes no sense unless one starts with God's holiness. End quote. God would rather that man freely chose him and the gift of salvation so they can invade hell, but men would rather freely choose to reject the very God that went out of their way to save them. In man's finite minds, they have degrees on sin, but not God. There is no logical problem of the concept of hell if the degrees of sin are removed and the holiness of God is understood in its entirety. This is a bold answer when it comes to the problem of evil in the reference to hell. A holy God must send unrighteous people to hell in order to remain holy. Now, ultimately, if one is a Christian theist, then he must accept the scriptures as stated and not reject the parts that he cannot comprehend. There are many theologians that try to answer this tremendous problem of evil and thus come to various conclusions, but most gravitate towards the free will defense. As time progresses and each theologian's work is built upon another, man comes closer to the truth of how God deals with man. While man cannot know every single aspect of how God operates, uh, but time allows for wisdom to be revealed by God. This problem was first notably addressed by... Augustine of Hippo. Augustine approached the problem of evil with the free will defense. He believed that God gave us free will so that we can choose to live rightly. It was not for both choices of right and wrong that man had the freedom, but rather his choices were supposed to match the character of God. Augustine notes that God would be unjust if he punished or rewarded men who did not have free will. He does question the fact that if God knows our evil desires and that, and that we would abuse our freedom as well, then why would he allow us to have such freedom? He then stated because of this, quote, that in this way God may appear to be the cause of our evil deeds. Though Augustine does put all the blame 
on the will of man and thought that man deserves to be punished for breaking the will of God. When questioned about the suffering of, quote, innocent children, he states essentially why would anyone be excluded from suffering despite having not caused harm yet. Many theologians like Augustine in the past and early church history utilize what is known as the free will defense to answer the problem of evil. Now, Augustine became quite the determinist later in his uh, life, and he probably wouldn't have agreed with his own self later. Though it's not certain that Augustine designed the argument, he is one of the early church fathers who wrote on the subject. Before the progression to other theologians in history, one must define and assess free will. Having libertarian free will means that an individual person can make his own choices outside the direct uh, influence of God. Man can either follow the commands of God or he can choose to reject them, which is classified as sin. Now, various theologians, especially in dealing with the topic, have a large range as what it means to have free will, especially when it comes to the theological argument between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. We have been granted by God this freedom for several reasons that I'm going to address later. Man has the responsibility before God to make the right choices, and human responsibility means that a person uh, or an individual person is responsible for their moral choices and even their eternal destinies. It was D.A. Carson who wrote his very interesting book titled how long, O oh Lord, and he has also the use of the free will defense, but he advances the argument to help the believer understand that God sees the grand scheme of their life and knows what he's doing. Carson relinquishes any blame of God from evil despite him being sovereign over everything. An example he gives is in reference to the cross. He says, quote, no matter how God operates behind the scenes in the crucifixion of his son, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the others did what they chose to do. They did what they wanted to do. That is why they are rightly held responsible. But God did not ordain that they do something as if they were mere puppets or, still worse, against their will. End quote. Carson focuses that God is sovereign and according to Romans chapter 8 verse 28, which says, quote, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who were called according to his purpose. End quote. Another theologian by the name of Alvin Plantinga really developed the free will defense philosophically and really went after the atheist ah, theologians, as, you, as they're called. As previously stated, J.L. Mackey, the notable philosophical atheist brings his modern argument against God because of the problem of evil. But Alvin Plantinga's argument is much, much more powerful, and it goes as such. Quote, A world containing creatures who are significantly free is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Now, God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to do what is right. For if he does so, then they are not significantly free after all. They do not do what is right freely. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore, he must create 
creatures capable of moral evil. And he can't give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. End quote. With this argument, it proves the proposition that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and wholly good. If man was determined, you, you can try to appeal to divine mystery all you want, but you still make God the author of sin. And that's a major problem, especially when we just talked about holiness and how it's, and how it's emphasized throughout the scriptures. Now, the atheist will respond that it's possible to do only what is right, even if a person is free to do wrong. Now, that would be theoretically true, except for the fall of man. <laughs> the sin of Adam, as in Romans uh, chapter 5, and verse 12, brought death and sin uh, upon mankind. It is impossible to always do what is right, because that means, according to Jesus' standards, one must have the right kind of mind as well, because the sin nature... That is in every man and woman always falls short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. In the vastness of the subject that we've already talked about, what do I personally believe in my theology when it comes to the problem of evil? I believe that the answer for the problem of evil can be found in the free will defense. But this can, can this particular defense be found in scripture? In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 37, Jesus Christ states, quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets, end quote. This goes back to why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the, middle, in the middle of the Garden of Eden. God put the tree there so man could make a moral choice to obey God. Ultimately, God wanted man to freely choose to love and obey him. The master of all the universe wanted communion and fellowship with his creation. It is interesting to note that in early Jewish writings, it says, quote, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. Then King David reduced them to 11. That's in Psalms 15. Then Isaiah then brought them down to six. You see that in Isaiah 33 verses 15 through 16. Then Micah brought, brought the commands down to three. Micah 6, 8. Now, in the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ trying to paint a very vivid picture in how man should live his life and also how he should commune with God. This law that God gave of thou shalt and thou shalt not was just a guide to help them through this life and to show them what God expects according to holiness as well as picturing different things that he was doing through uh, history like salvation and, and also the future but the ultimate ethic that God wanted man to learn was the supreme ethic of love and what love really meant the greatest commands were to love the Lord God with all your heart all of your soul and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself one thing that must be understood is that freedom and love walk hand in hand with each other. If God compels man like some machine, 
then it's impossible for man to freely love God in return. That's a very, very important concept to understand because it train wrecks the idea of determinism. Godliness does not guarantee that one will be immune to suffering in this life because, quote, when trials and afflictions are permitted, we do well to ascertain if there is any reason why they are sent or to learn the lessons for which they teach. That was said by the notable author and theologian Herbert Lockyer. It also should be noted that whenever we think that God is being unfair or that we should never do some of the things God does, we make ourselves more righteous than God. Maybe we need this revelation more than we think we do. In the book of Job, we see that Job himself found this, uh, found this to be true in a long, drawn-out process, and his suffering had nothing to do with his sin, but rather because he was righteous. Job did not know about the discussion and challenge between God and Satan. He also didn't know how much God held him up in high esteem because of his love for his creator. In Job's heart and through some of the words of his mouth, he challenged why God would punish him if he had not sinned. At the conclusion of the book of Job, God answers him out of the whirlwind and causes Job to repent of his thoughts. A very powerful book on the suffering of Job and the book of Job overall is a book written by Leighton Talbert titled Beyond Suffering. Excellent book to read. But Leighton Talbert makes this uh, very interesting point. He says, quote, Job is not repenting of any sins that provoked his sufferings, for that would undermine the book's thesis. He is repenting for what both Elihu and God accused him, his wrong verbal response to his suffering by calling God's justice into question, end quote. This really goes back to the free will defense. What do I mean? If one is asking God to stop the suffering and pain in this life, then why not every other sinful thing in the world? To have God constantly changing events in man's life to keep him from making his own choices or so that he doesn't hurt himself. What we're truly asking for is something really different from love. It may seem like such a great notion at first, but you're not really understanding what you're actually asking God to do to rob us of our most precious gift of free will, the, the ability to love God. Yes, the greatest denial we're asking for in that equation is that freedom of our will to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind is just going to be taken away. That is the denial. God very seldom in scriptures steps in and alters events and only does so to put the ultimate plan to work, which was Jesus Christ. Anytime God stepped in for a particular reason, specifically had something to do to further his plan, which would ultimately come about with the salvation of the world in Jesus Christ. There are so many examples to show uh, that through the Old Testament, through the uh, coming to the New Testament, to make sure that Jesus would come to the point of bearing the sins of the entire world upon his shoulders. God allowed David to commit the sin with Bathsheba and kill her husband. David was judged for his decisions, but he was allowed to make his own choices. 
if love is the supreme ethic and love is to reign supreme, then you must be able to accept or reject God. You must have the freedom of your will, as does everyone in the world around you who's making their own choices, whether they're good or evil. God ultimately gets the glory when his saints suffer for him. Christians are trusting in God and that he has a supreme knowledge that there is a reason for all of the suffering. Really take a listen to podcast number six, where I really deal with the purpose of suffering. It'll truly astound you. As Christians, we don't oftentimes know why trials are allowed in our life that put us through suffering or why God's saints suffer the most brutal persecutions in history, whether it's from the Catholic Church or the Islamic religion. Our human nature makes us shy away from suffering, but the greatest events that have taken place in history come from the suffering of God's saints. William Spafford, who lost his daughters in a shipwreck, ended up writing one of the great hymns, It Is Well With My Soul, Through the Pain. The prolific songwriter Fanny Crosby lost her eyes at birth due to a doctor's mistake, but was used of God to pen hundreds, if not thousands, of hymns. Ron Hamilton had cancer in his eye and had it removed, but ended up developing Patch the Pirate Kids. All of the examples given were to reach others for the glory of God. God may not cure us of our infirmities because the trial was not for us, but it was for somebody else. For instance, if you go to the hospital and there's, you have some type of appointment to meet a doctor or a nurse or whatever, you're specifically there to meet somebody that you never would have met before, and little do you know that God may be trying to use you to reach them for the gospel so they can get saved. You know, God may not miraculously hear us, heal us of, a, of our infirmities, but the trials that we go through in this life can either be a witness to the world or a detriment to somebody else getting saved. But be it known, of course, when we go through the trials of this life and suffering, God will walk us through it. He will walk you through the fire. He will walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. For he promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Besides this, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came into this world and endured the greatest suffering. Why should we think that somehow we're going to be exempt from it? There was an old Methodist preacher named John Atkinson who wrote his book, the Garden of Sorrows in 1868. And speaking of the sorrows of Christ, he said, quote, Now if Jesus could not walk our mortal pathway without being subjected to mortal woe, is it not strange that innocence and goodness suffer? If earth could not afford its maker a home without giving him a portion of its pain, is it strange that none of its children are exempt from like portion? Goodness is no protection against suffering. The purest of saints have often been the most tried and tortured. End quote. If God had wiped out Adam and Eve after eating the fruit, then none of us would be here today. There would be no redemption story to tell. There would be no exclamation of the glory of God throughout the human history. It does not end with sinners condemning the world to judgment and godless hell. Jesus could have chosen anywhere in history to appear and pay the price for the sins of the world. He chose a particular time during the Pax Romana or Roman peace 
so that his glorification would not be stolen by the events taking place in history around it. He also chose to suffer the most humiliating and most painful death devised by man. The Romans were experts at pain and they inflicted it upon the Savior. And the two greatest proclamations in the world came from the cross of Calvary. Father, forgive, and it is finished. Thus, it finally comes to this. Because of sin, each one of us is responsible for the death of Christ. It is because of the sacrifice of, of the love of God for the sins of mankind that we are saved. For those who are saved, one day we will see Jesus. And in, in that day, just like the Apostle Thomas once said to the Savior when he resurrected, in Greek, ha kurios mu ka mu, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. God gives us a glimpse into eternity in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4 and 5. It says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, behold, I make all things new End quote. The problem of suffering is a very powerful topic that can draw man either closer or further away from God. At first, it may seem as if there's no logical answer for the issue, and many theologians have approached and tried to answer to the best of man's knowledge that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent. The free will defense is the most logical answer that one can give and explain of the problem of suffering. It's also the most biblical. God values the love of his creation, man, and thus wants man to have the freedom to love. In so having this freedom, man is also free not to love God and therefore choose to sin against him. We have also analyzed the personal suffering of God's righteous saints and how they must look towards him as they go through the dark times in life. We've also seen that God himself had come down from the heaven of heavens and endured the brutal punishment of the cross. He did this as a sacrifice of sins to mankind, and, and through that suffering, man can have salvation. With all the evidence that is given, we can fully conclude that the problem of suffering revolves around the love of God and what he expects us to exemplify in this world as we interact with those who need to be saved very powerful very very powerful we could have gone a whole lot longer in this podcast and there's so much more to be said but i hope that this gives you a glimpse into the love of god i want to thank you for listening and be sure to follow us on the podcast media take a look at our website ourmightyfortress.com and subscribe for more updates Stay tuned next time for more great content and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.